from the Duck South Studios in Morgan City, Mississippi. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I want to punch you in the face so bad right now. This is the On The X podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Get the governor harumph. What we've got here is failure to communicate. This podcast is being brought to you by Joseph Presley at Four Corner Properties. Joseph Presley is the 2016 Recreational Real Estate Agent of the Year for Mississippi. If you are in the market for a piece of deer, turkey, or duck hunting property in Arkansas, Louisiana, or Mississippi, give Joseph a call. Joseph can be reached at 601-540-7240 or check out their website at www.4cplandandhomes.com. I said what I said and I'll stand by it to the death. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And now, here are your hosts, J. Paul Jackson. They spent... Listen to this, $1 million on ads against me in Iowa. Now here's the good news. They use the best pictures. I look so good in those pictures. I'm trying to find where they got them. Rocky LaFleur. Yo, Adrian! Jake LaTundras. Where are you going? Going west. Gotta go west. And Josh Webb. You don't say much, do you? Welcome to the On The X Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I'm Jay Paul Jackson, today joined by our co-host, Rocky LaFleur and Josh Webb. And guys, I'll tell you what, it was so good last week to be back on the air with you guys. And uh, man, I am, I am really, really excited about today's podcast as well. But before we get into it, I, I do want to say that it's a good thing that I am such a Trump supporter and, and feel like he probably fits me well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rocky slid a uh, new opening in there and didn't didn't know if if, if you had heard it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I yeah. Think it fits hey, well. listen, if you're I listening to this podcast right now and you fast forward through <laughs> the opening, go back and listen to the opening. It's a new opening we just had done to uh, bring Jake in as a co-host. And I gave Jay Paul a new signature line in the podcast opening, and and I think it fits him well. It's a it's a Donald Trump quote, and then we gave Josh a new uh, a new quote for, for you know, his. It, yeah, it's so it's funny because you asked me about that, and and like I'm, it's just, I'm going to have to send it to, to Connor. What people don't know is you know, the boy that played Little Forrest Gump uh, in the movie Forrest Gump, which is part of the new quote that Rocky put on the on the opening. Uh, Connor, Connor, and and his two sisters. Now we all went to school together. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm wow, I didn't that, know that. That's that's my uh, yeah. He's he's a few years older than me. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. We we went to school together, and then both of his sisters. We we all went to school together. So. Yeah, he he still lives up here in, in in our hometown of of Corinth, but I have to let him know that that I'm using one of his movie one of his movie lines uh, as as the opening uh, for our podcast. Jay Paul, I don't know cool. if you heard Josh's new uh, opening quote. It's you don't say much, do you? I've had people. Uh, I've had people after listening to the podcast go, man, you know, the, the old opener 
fit me pretty good and uh, really didn't understand some of them. Josh's, I think that this is a heck of a lot more appropriate and really fits well. And look, we've got a guest that's about to join us today, but before we we get into today's topic, I I do want to revisit last week. You know, in last week's podcast, we promised everybody that we were going to talk about a hot topic this week, um, and that is an article that Delta Waterfowl featured in their most recent magazine about the decline in hunter numbers. And there are a lot of people out there that if you take a look at their social media, particularly Delta's Instagram, felt like they were way, way off the mark. But uh, I can tell you the guys at Delta, they have good science backing just about everything they do. And so that was going to be our topic of discussion today. But folks, we're going to postpone that. Um, Instead of discussing it today, we're not going to wait till next week, uh, next Monday. We're going to come back and do a special midweek podcast on Wednesday and hit on that subject. So if you haven't read the article yet, you've got another opportunity before we discuss it. Go to the Delta Waterfowl website, check out their article about the decline in hunter numbers, and then take a look at some of the feedback um, and pushback that they received on social media. Um, so we're putting that off to Wednesday because today Rocky has a special guest lined up for us to talk a little bit about another hot topic, and that is some changes that looks like are in the very near future for the way that the state of Arkansas in particular manages their green timber reservoirs on a lot of their public hunting areas. Um, they had a great article at um, agfc.com, arkansasgamefishcommission.com, that you need to take the time to read it. And today we're going to be discussing that article, and we're also going to be joined by Mr. Bill Shepard, a very special guest that, that Rocky has lined up for us. So that's coming up Bye. later on in the podcast. Hold on, before, you know, Bill's going to come on. Bill's still, we're five or ten minutes away from Bill, but before we go any further, I want to talk about Joseph Presley, the 2016 Recreational Real Estate Agent of the Year. If you're looking for a duck, deer, or turkey hunting property, Joseph is a guy that you need to get in touch with. You can reach him at 601-540-7240 or 4cplandonhomes.com. Um, just tell him what you're looking for. He'll match it up, and I'm sure he'll give you a bunch of different properties that you and him can go and look at. But uh, before we go any further, Josh, I want to ask you about this weekend. Josh, are you trying to are you, were, were you trying to mow down a tree? What? Tell tell me real quick Shut what up. happened. Shut up. <laughs> I was clearing the shooting lane, uh, preparing for bow season. That's all. <laughs> While you were turkey hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I really don't know. I, I sat there and tried to. Th- I missed. I just, I just flat missed. I didn't, even, I didn't even cut a feather off off that poor turkey. Um, and he flew out across a, a little break or slough and just sat up in a tree and looked at me. 
um, mad because I ruined his day. Uh, uh, scared the crap out of him. But, um, no, I, I mean, it, it happens. It's been a long time since I've done that, but, but it definitely happened. Um, and, and what I was saying is I sat there and thought and thought and thought of why I even why I even shot when I did. I, I and I still can't. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I, I I don't know. I, I just I shot I shot too quick is what happened. I I just did not make sure he was well standing right, look, where he I needed can, to be standing. And and look, I I, I mean I can understand not know, cutting I, a feather because. It looks like it's about forty holes in that tree. Oh, forty different yeah. little pellets. yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was uh. Well, that tree caught that tree caught the full pattern. There was uh, the thing about there, it I mean, is I've seen people shoot two and three four inch trees, but this yeah, is a twelve inch tree. Oh yeah, it's a huge tree. Well, I, I don't know. Look, I'm I'm serious. I I don't know if I blacked out or what, but I cannot, like, I don't even remember, I shoot a red dot sight, which is a terrible thing to say, because that takes away even more excuses for missing, but I don't even remember putting the bead on him, I don't, he was was coming directly at me, and the last time he gobbled, he was about 45 yards, 40 or 45 yards, and he walked a straight, between me and him were two two oak trees and he was walking to me straight but 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 behind him and I knew he was gonna come out on the right or left of him. And for whatever reason, as soon as I saw him stepped out to step out to the left, I shot. I, I don't and, and he wasn't leaving. He was I just got extremely impatient for some reason and and and, and paid the price. Um and look, I didn't know that I had even shot that tree. Uh I just I thought which is really even worse. I thought I just just clean mist. I mean, I did clean mist, but I walked out there <laughs> where he was standing, and and man, that was oh yeah, that tree caught the fool pattern. But you know, I didn't do anything. I just laughed and tipped my hat to him, and and I'll hunt him another day. Uh, yeah, that's, I, a, that's, I, the, that's actually the first selfie get, I've ever gotten from you, and it really was a very frustrated face. I was frustrated. Um, I was, but but I I really I deserved it for being as impatient as as I was. I had no reason to shoot when I did, and um, I really didn't. Uh, of course, my wife lives and breathes turkey hunting, and she wasn't she wasn't with me, um, and so that was the the first thing. Uh, the first thing she said was, "Well, that's what you get for going without me." And yeah, that was probably the first thing that crossed my mind was just bad karma for going without her. Um, but uh, anyway, I, look, I, I used to get mad about it. I've, I still have a scar on my hand from a tree I punched one year opening morning. Um, that was probably the worst. I was I was still in high school, um, and and I had scouted my butt off and found. Uh, I knew I knew where I knew where five different turkeys were, um, and they were they were but they were hanging together. And I got in there early, open morning, set up, and everything worked absolutely perfect, um, except the big strutter ended up coming directly from my left. And 
which was fine because he went behind a tree and I when I turned to get on he was still out there about sixty yards. When I turned to get lined up with him I did not see the other gobbler he had with him that had made it to about forty yards that I didn't see. And that turkey started clucking and leaving. And anyway, long story short, on opening day I missed three times that year and not the same turkey. And I was totally ready to quit uh, then. I was ready to throw everything I had in the dumpster and go do something else for the rest of the spring because that was <laughs> that was awful. Uh, I missed twice there that morning and then tried to redeem myself on one midday and completely missed him too. And <laughs> that was that was awful. But but anyway, um, it is what it is. Look, I'm going to change the subject on you real quick because Bill's going to be on here in just a minute. But uh, the Masters, I saw a picture of Waylon and Joe watching the end of the Masters. Now, I didn't get to catch the end of it yesterday, but I saw Sergio win. I know golf's important to you and probably a lot of people that listen to the podcast. Um, You know, I was telling you earlier this morning about Surprised me when Sergio won in a playoff. I can see Sergio winning in overall, just outright winning. But I've seen Sergio play and hit one bad shot, and it just totally screwed him up. And he must have played strong yesterday. He was That's the most comfortable I've seen him play four rounds of golf in arguably the last 15 years. He just... Um, and, you know, they kept bringing that up uh, that year that Sergio kind of came on to the scene in 99, 2000, somewhere like that. And and they, I mean, he had game, he did, but he just did not have it together mentally. Um, when he was playing good, he couldn't be stopped. And so, so you know, then in those early years, uh, you know, he was, he was played up as the person that would be able to rival a Tiger. And which it probably could have happened had Sergio kept it together in between his ears, but he just he didn't for all for a long time. Um, if it's just like you said, if he hit one bad shot, his day was over. And um, but Sergio is you know what well into his thirties now, and and a lot. I'm not saying he was immature, but he's a lot more mature and a lot more patient on the golf course and in his career. And uh, I was I was happy to see him win. I, I really was. Um, and he overcame a lot of things. I mean, he has a terrible uh, track record for Saturday rounds at Augusta and uh, back nine uh, Sunday rounds at Augusta. I mean, his his sat his overall uh, you know score in 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 all the rounds he's played at Augusta in the Masters. His overall his overall Saturday scores are, you know, thirty eight over par in his lifetime. Um so he plays terrible on Saturdays. He he just he for whatever reason, but he didn't this year. He hung in there and then yesterday, um, you know, it was close and they made the turn and uh everybody wanted to I guess, you know, kind of rule out Sergio because they kept bringing up these statistics of he's played the back nine horribly, and but he didn't. He he played it, uh, with the exception of number 13, he played it pretty well flawlessly. And uh, I, I was, I, I was, didn't see any 
any emotion out of him all week until really until he made really until he made that eagle on fifteen. He saw a little bit on fourteen, but when he made that eagle on fifteen, you saw some of the emotion that he that he had fifteen and twenty years ago, which was fun to watch. But um, what I really really liked about the whole entire thing is. Him and, and, and Justin Rose high fiving each other the whole entire time. Um, I mean, they were they were they were for each other. Uh, it didn't. Um, he, sure, it you you want to win a Masters, but but uh, you know Sergio hit a good shot. Justin Rose high fived him, and vice versa. And they made it. I mean, they made it fun. They did. They made it a lot of fun to watch. It was another very memorable Sunday at Augusta. Yeah, I was glad to see Sergio pick up his first major because I actually was a huge Sergio fan because I thought he was going to be the one to topple, excuse me, topple the the Tiger Woods of the early 2000s when he first came out. And uh, I just look, talking about golf, and we're not going to talk about it very long, but, you know, everybody wants to say that Tiger... And don't get me wrong, Tiger's had injuries of what the past five, six years. Um, I don't think that Tiger really got that much worse later on in his career. I just think that everybody else got that much better around. Yes, him. I agree with that. It's a completely different game than when Tiger was dominating uh, the scene. Um, yeah, I mean that's the Tiger Woods effect. Now he was dominant when he first came on the scene, but everybody else improved their game. They they I mean, brought it to another is, level insane um well and that's that's one of the reasons that you know whoever i think dustin johnson is the current world number one but i mean heck that ranking changes once a month sometimes twice a month because everybody is i mean you've got so many people who are who are they're they're dominant you know the thing about golf is consistency and that's um i mean tiger yeah he consistently won he did but and i'm not taking anything away from him but he just uh you know it was it was a different time when he was when he was dominating the scene um and, but you you're exactly right i mean they are some exceptional players especially in the mental era of the game mental part of the game uh, it it's amazing to see some of these guys 20 21 22 years old have the the mental game, the mental side of golf is as strong as they do. Because that's usually what happens. You have a kid come on the scene and he plays good, but, uh, you know, he has a, a bad round or a bad tournament or whatever, and he just he just goes nuts. You'll never see or hear from him again or whatever. He can't ever rebound from it. And that's uh, that's happening less and less. I mean, and these dudes are... <laughs> I mean, 20, so, 21, 22 so, years old, and they're they're so good. They're just so good in all. No telling. Well, the thing about it is, there's no telling. You know, probably thing that didn't used to happen was you know going to see a sports psychologist. But now, sports psychologist is one of the fastest growing fields in psychology. I know that may sound crazy, but you take Alabama football. Everybody wants to know how. You can get a field of 11 or 20, let's just say 22 four- and five-star athletes that were prima donnas coming into college, how you get them to operate together. Yeah, Nick Staben gets a lot of credit for that. 
But let me tell you something. They have 13, 11, I can't remember if it's 11 or 13 sports psychologists on staff getting those guys mentally capable to go on that field and play together. That yeah. could be wrong. Nick Saban deserves some credit for being a great coach because the coach gets them to play together. But you have to, you know, you have to reprogram some of these kids in the same way, just like you're talking about in golf, you hit one bad shot. It Some people can handle it, very few, but a lot of people can't handle it. And you see that in the old days, they just blew up and disappeared off the yeah, golf mat. That's right. That's right. That, that, that's exactly right. Um, but you know, uh, you know and, I, don't, I don't, you know, like in Alabama, you know, you get they, those guys. Maybe and you see a lot of programs imitating what Alabama's doing, but you've got to reprogram these kids when they get to your campus because they have been the star of their school, the star of their town, the star of their county. And that's right. You've got to, well, you've got to reprogram they, them to play together. That's it. That's it. You, you've got to. Um. Yeah. I mean. I mean. That, that's the best way to put it. You. You've got to make them realize that they're they're not the only state champion on the field anymore. They're not the only. Uh. You know. Four or five star recruit. Um. And 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 for some of them, they're not the only four or five star recruit in their position. Uh. You know. When they show up. You know. Some of these. You know. Some of these D backs and stuff. Heck, they'll have two or three of them that are four star recruits. And they're fighting for the same position. So you've got you got to realize that that now you've got to do something to make yourself stand out. I mean, among an incredible uh, class of talent, uh, and they're successful in doing it over there. So oh yeah, they're, whatever yeah, they're, they're doing, they're doing it right. All right, bud. Well, look, I don't mean to cut us off real quick fast, but um, I know Bill Shepard doesn't have a lot of time. We, we're bringing Bill on to talk a little bit about Green Tree Reservoirs and the adverse effects of having water on some of these trees way too long, and we're going to go to that interview now. So today we're discussing green timber reservoirs and their management. Now, as most of our listeners know, the state of Arkansas, um, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, has multiple public hunting areas that are basically green timber reservoirs. And the GTRs, as they're known as, um, actually were, were kind of saving grace for duck hunters starting back in the 50s when folks began to realize that, hey, some of these uh, reservoirs that rice farmers are using to flood their fields also are excellent habitat during the winter for ducks. The state latched onto that, and for years they've been managing green timber reservoirs in various areas for public hunting. However, as we've been discussing, keeping water on them during duck season isn't always natural. It's had a really adverse effect to the health of these reservoirs. And to learn a little bit more about that today, we're going to be joined by our special guest, Mr. Bill Shepard. Now, Bill has an extensive background working with the NRCS, um, through all sorts of projects, but mainly in wetland development, design, restoration. He is an expert in hydrology. For years, he helped manage for the state many, many projects. And today, he is in the private sector, continuing to do that with a firm out of South Haven called Civil Link. 
Bill, man, you're a true expert in this area. Welcome to the show. It's a great privilege to have you on here today and to be able to interview you a little bit to find out all about how we are, in a lot of cases, damaging our green timber reservoirs by managing them for ducks. Well, it's great to be here. Well, I'll tell you this, Jay Paul. Uh, Look, I was... Bill and I were talking a couple of weeks ago. It's been a few weeks back now, and I was asking Bill if he saw the article that the Arkansas Game and Fish came out with about the, the ad, like you said, the adverse effects on the the hardwoods that are going up underwater. And Bill, it led to a lot of discussions that day when you and I were on the phone, and a lot of wisdom and knowledge was passed on to me that day. Because it's stuff that just blew me away that, you know, you don't think of. But, you know, one of the things you were talking about, Bill, was, and we'll start off with this, about the depth that they were flooding um, some of these, some of this acreage over in Arkansas. And that's one of the main things. I got to tell you, Bill, and, and he's obviously retained something in that fluff between his ears, so you really must be an expert and a great teacher, but <laughs> I had to get that jab in there at your rock. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, so, it, it, it's you know, unbelievable how much knowledge this man has in his head. Well, <laughs> well I don't know about that. I've, uh, <laughs> I've had the fortunate opportunity to, uh, like, like I told you, uh been duck hunting. 45 years, but duck hunting 45 years doesn't get you anything but age and a lot of missed ducks unless you're, you know, perceptive of kind of what's going on around you and trying to be a steward of uh, trying to figure out what a duck with a peanut-sized brain is looking at or wanting or... (laughs) Sounds like Rocky. That's that's always kind of been my goal, Uh, you know. I love hunting them, and I wish I knew... You know, why are they coming here? What do they want? Why is this spot better than that spot today on this cloudy day or sunshiny day? So it's kind of, uh, and being an engineering background and, like I said, getting to do a lot of WRP planning and hydrology planning and uh, getting the opportunity of hunting a lot of different terrains for the last 40 years, uh, kind of, I kind of absorbed uh, uh good bit of information but uh it's i'll go ahead and tell you i'm not a biologist or a forester by trade i've I've, as my nrcs biologist friend says i've got my junior biology badge that he hands to me every once in a while uh but he doesn't let me talk in public when he's there so (laughs) i'll leave it at that well tell us how how does the depth that you know a lot of these places i hunt the black river quite a bit and they're flooded to be really boat friendly but that's not always the best thing for ducks rocky was telling me from y'all's last conversation so tell our listeners about that well kind of going into a background of a flooded timber and you know i don't i haven't hunted flooded timber a dozen times in my life but i got some friends over there and we talk about habitat and areas and and Things along that line, and uh, and I've seen this in South Delta, and you see it anywhere uh, you have water backing up in timber. Um, if you think of uh, how we've we've really manipulated a lot of this hydrology and, and, and farmland and everything, and 
but but we're we're forcing some things uh that are kind of outside the norm. If you'll think about how a bottomland hardwood tree was developed over the year, how they thrive and survive in these habitats. Um, you know, most of our floods, major river floods, backwater floods, Mississippi River, Sunflower, Yazoo, White, Cash, all those, our dry period is August, September. You know, then October you'll start getting a little water and everything, but they're predominantly not flooded until on into December, late December. And our big floods come January, February, March, and they'll hang in there till spring. So those species kind of developed uh, based on that historic uh, water regime. Uh, you know, like I was telling Rocky, uh, you know, if you'll just pay attention to when you're out there hunting, uh, look at what you're hunting in. Uh, if you If you think about... South Delta, uh, Delta National. Well, you know, I was Jay Paul. I was explaining to Rocky that each tree can stand so much water in the growing season. Each one thrives and survives depending on water depth and duration and and uh, soil type and everything. If you if you look at a typical cross section from a bottomland hardwood swamp and kind of picture a cross section, you're coming up slope. Uh, going to higher ground, think about what you see. And y'all see it, uh, but a lot of people, it, it doesn't click for them. You know, you're down in, you start out in a low swampy area, you're in cypress trees, tupelo gum trees. And what's the first oak you see that's wet? Well, Delta National Forest is covered up with overcut. That's the that's first true oak yeah. that you see right. down at that. But they're that's what not. I was about to say. We have huh? a ton of those here where I live. Um, and it, it's exactly like you're talking about. The second you, it's like almost as soon as you get out of the water, um, you you start hitting big overcups. Um, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. and, and keep going up the slope and think about what's the first red oak that you see above the uh, overcup? Overcup's a white oak. First red oak you see is a nut all. Okay? What, climb up the slope a little bit. What's the next one you see? Willow and Willa. water oak, they'll probably be, there won't be two tenths change in elevation between the two. Keep climbing up the slope. You start hitting some other some other oaks. Uh, uh, you'll get some, uh, you got to climb way up the slope to get to cherry bark land or uh, true white oak. You'll hit a swamp chestnut uh, a, a little somewhere between the two. But if you just... If you look at the cross-sectional area, or just kind of look at your surroundings, and you can you can dang near draw a topo map looking at vegetation and tree tree species. A lot of times you'll go we'll go out to a site, and and you can follow you know you can get you a bundle of flags and you can follow a contour line just by looking at vegetation. You know what, right. what we see in the bottoms, we see the uh, smart weeds. Then we come up, we'll start seeing some uh, sprangle tops, tooth cups, um, barnyard grass. Um, yeah, I mean, you, if you'll just pay attention to that, you know, that's that's how the the tree or the uh, plant species develop. And that's, you know, some can stand wet feet, some can't stand wet feet. You will never find a cherry bark down next to an overcup oak unless somebody right, planted it in their yard. So, Bill, tell me. The 
Bill, pardon me for interrupting. Yeah. But you know, as you progress through that with the swallow go, you know, the lowest part obviously is going to have your cupola and your cypress, and then the first oaks are going to be your overcup, and then your nut all. But and as you move on, and not necessarily are all of those acorns the best for ducks. I know that overcup acorns are very large and they have a very large cap to them. It's my understanding that ducks much prefer the nut all or the acorn from the willow oak because they're much smaller to the overcup. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and talking with biologists and, and looking at it over the years, yeah, I don't know what eats overcup oak. Uh, I, I just don't. Maybe a squirrel will eat it. Maybe a deer will eat it. But, uh, you know, a duck can't choke that down. You know, if you want to look at actual size, if you get in a nut all willow water oak, I would rather, rather be in willow water oak. It's a smaller acorn. You know, water oak, you're going to have about 200 seeds per pound. Willow oak, you'll be in that 300, 350 seeds per pound. Nut all, you'll be in... Uh, anywhere from 85 to 105, and I used to grow trees for a while, bare root seedlings, so I do know the seed count, because <laughs> I've counted a lot of them. Well, I, I can tell you one thing that loves that loves uh, overcup, and that's these dang hogs. Um, yeah. yes, they, they love them, but, but they're one of the few animals that can that, that yeah. can't actually uh, you know, eat them. Um, so talking about some of the things and projects you've been a part of, I live, uh, well, I live uh, heck, stone throwing distance from Matthew's break. Um, and I know that, that you played a part in, uh, in doing some of that levee system and stuff over there, didn't you? Yeah, um, uh did some of the preliminary hydraulics uh, for Nature Conservancy to go and uh, get the money to put that project together. And Dan Prevost and I did uh, did some work uh, with, with Dan's crew, which, you know, uh, it, it's... It was interesting, you know, we went out there, if you're familiar with Matthews, all those fingers that run down into Matthews, and, and, and everybody want to know, well, how deep can we put the water? What is too deep? Well, biologically, you can go in there and do a cross-sectional uh, survey on all those fingers, and what you do is you start out at the water line. It's the elevation of whatever it happens to be, and let's count tree species at that elevation. Let's climb up the slope. What's the next tree we hit? Well, we found out that as we came up out of the water, we started hitting willows and waters and end up on a few ridges, isolated ridges. We found some higher red oaks. But you can historically look and see from from the terrain what's the prolonged hydrology of that area. You know, we're looking at trees that are 20, 30 years old. Well, you know, they didn't just pop up. They got started with the water level at a certain, you know, at a certain range. You know, it fluctuated during the growing season, you know. And that's the deal, the growing season. Is that tree thriving and surviving in the growing season? Um, well, is that is that the part of it that, that Arkansas especially is speaking more publicly about is uh, still having water? On those trees when the uh, when the growing season kind of starts and how it's hurting the, the green tree reservoirs. From what I read, uh, yeah, you know, if you read through that article, you see, and you'll notice this if y'all go to these areas, you see those die off, those those dead branches, uh, uh, crowns stunted, uh, branches 
uh, lateral branches looking tough. Uh, uh, what looks like a burst line at the water line down at the bottom of the tree. You know, that, that tree is trying to put sap down in the ground as fast as it can. If it's hitting water, uh, it, it's hard for it. It's, it's struggling to, to do that. And like I'm out on a limb here with my forestry and biology knowledge, but it's what I've seen and what the biologists have told me, and it makes sense looking at the hydrology of all that. Um, it's, uh, it's not natural. You know, that's why I think uh, the, the rules were dry one year out of three, um, if I'm not... Yeah, I believe that's right. I believe that's and, what they and, were And, you know, think about it. How often, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, how often do we have um, water on those trees December 5th uh, when, it's, when a red oak's still trying to put its sap in the ground, you know? A nut is one of the last ones to really uh, uh, knock its leaves off and uh, fully go dormant from what I've seen. When I've tried to collect acorns in the past, you know, a nut all won't shed acorns and, or sling its, sling its leaves off till they're one of the later ones. Willows and waters would be earlier, so, you know. And, and that's when, you know, willows and waters are probably dumping their acorns Mid-December on into January, it'll get the rest of them. Uh, but not all is a little later. Um, it's well, a little you wetter. know, from, from what my understanding is, uh, uh, the motivation behind Arkansas Game and Fish modifying their plan, it goes to two different things that you've already spoken about. Um, number one, having water on them too long artificially obviously is – hurting the health of the trees. I think they did a study and they classified um, trees in six different categories from um, minimal damage to dead. And, it, you know, pretty even in all categories across the board except dead. I think it was the lowest percentage, thank goodness. But that's a result of having water on there too long. I mean, when you think about it with nature, you know, you don't always have water. I know I used to hunt the White River bottom, um, the floodplain there that's not part of uh, the AG um, FC's management plan. It just floods naturally, and you'd have years when you couldn't hunt at all. You know, so when you put water on every duck season, you're going to have water on there artificially much longer than nature would do, and that's affecting the health. And then number two, the water depth. Now, you just said that the nutalls usually will be right after the overcups, and then you've got your willow oaks, and then you've got other oaks. And when they're flooding these areas like Bayou Mito and Black River WMA, they're flooding them so you can have boat traffic through it. Well, if where the nutalls are at is, say, two and a half, three feet deep, what does that do for the ducks? Obviously, mallards or puddle ducks or dabbling ducks, if they can't tip and reach the bottom to get to those acorns, there's no value in having it flooded at all, is there? Right. And, and you know, I've heard biologists speak about this. You know, it's all about energy for a duck. Um, he's, he's, he's a puddle duck. He's tipping. If he can move up slope and eat smaller acorns quicker in shin-deep water, why would he not be there as opposed to fighting um, something deeper? 
You know, that's sort of like you see uh, ducks out in open fields. Well, you get a rain or you get a flash event, they're always moving to the upper edge, you know, to the to the leading edge on the water. Same thing in timber. They're trying to get that easy energy, new food. They're trying to work that upper edge on on rising on rising water. From what I understand, talking with uh, people that hunt over there and one of the managers over there, and like I said, I haven't been over there to hunt that green timber, but it's uh, it's all flat stuff. You know, it's 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 roads that are flooded, and and people can ride over there and get out and stand on hard bottom and and hunt this uh, ideal water depth. You know, shin to knee deep. Um, it's a uh, but still, it's uh, outside the norm being wet every year. Probably, you know, I bet they would be. I didn't read the fine print on the report or other reports, but, you know, early water is probably more critical than uh, late water. You know, we always have these flash events that stay in here, big river events that stay in April, May, but they don't come along every year. You know, it, it's a problem on freshly planted stuff when it's trying to bud out in May and, you know, we, we cover up a, a bare root seedling with uh, to the top of the uh, top of the seedling. Well, it's not going to make it. But the bigger trees can probably handle the, the prolonged flooding in the, in the spring more so than they could early on when they're trying to put their sap down. Right. You know, I've uh, seen this recently. I've been looking at a couple of different pieces of property here in West Tennessee that I've uh, been asked about putting together a management plan on. One um, has an artificial levee, and they've levied it up years ago to hold water better, and these two places are side by side. The other just floods for the most part naturally. It's got a couple of small reservoirs on it that can be pumped up so it holds ducks, but most of it just floods naturally. And looking at these two pieces of property, the health of the trees is so evident. You see, even even some of the trees that love water, like the Tupelo and the Cypress, uh, where water's been put on some areas that have had cypress on them for decades, they're starting to spike out. The cypresses are and die because the water stays too deep there for them. Um, in contrast, the piece of woods right next to it, you can see that the trees are very, very healthy. The oaks are bearing acorns every year. There's a mast crop. Um, I know that there are some areas where I've hunted over in Arkansas, green trimmer reservoirs that a lot of the oak trees no longer produce mast because they've been damaged from water being put on them to or held on them for too long. So, you know, I, I know we're talking about public ground here, but there's some great information for those guys out there that listen to us that have their own private flooded timber. And uh, I've actually seen another project where there's a group of guys that have 300 acres of green timber and each year they have a hundred acres they have it in three different pools and each year they have one pool that they do not flood and they rotate that obviously on a three-year rotation and they are killing the heck out of ducks because they have great acorn production every year 
Yeah, I wonder what, you know, looking at the Arkansas report, you know, even if they change the management, you know, will a damaged tree like that ever bounce back? I don't know. That's uh, It's obviously got them concerned. But, um, they, you know, when I first heard of them, they called them dead tree reservoirs, so that kind of threw up a flag for me. Sounds like it's uh, <laughs> outside the norm. Uh, and, you know, it's... They want everybody wants to mimic what's natural, and you know, thinking back in you know sixties and seventies, you know, all oh, we used to stand in here, shin deep water, and tear them up. Well, did you do that for sixty days in a row, or is that when the when the river popped up and you had good hunting for about seven or eight days at a time? Um, I don't know. <laughs> We're all try everything's in a state of flux. You know, we've we've drastically changed hydrology throughout the lower Mississippi Valley, and uh, we put in levees, we farmed it, we've silted in sloughs and breaks and things like that. It's uh, every, Everything's changed. Uh, are we ever going to bounce back to where it was, like when I started hunting in the 70s? I don't know. Um, well, I think you just answered your own question earlier about, you know, did you do that for 60 days, or did you just do it when the water got in there and it was good? Uh, as you said earlier, Ducks love that leading edge of the water. They love that new water. And I can tell you from personal experience, hunting a lot there in that, the hardwood bottoms of the White River, you know, there are areas there that have a lot of willow oaks and a lot of nut all, and as soon as they get water, they get ducks. They're hardwired to know where the food situation is the best. And, uh, you know, those guys back in the day, I could tell you when they killed them. They killed them when they got new water. And they did it regularly on the new water because, you know, you had much, much healthier habitat than you've got today from all the artificial flooding. Don't you think, Bill? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Rocky and I were speaking about that this morning. You know, some of the bigger areas that really held ducks that, that I'm familiar with was, you know, down there around where Rocky is. Well, what's changed? Um well, we've got levees, we've got control structures where we used to have Yazoo River backing in and, you know, that part of the world holding half a million ducks. And first geese on the planet I ever saw in, in Mississippi Delta were down there around Morgan City. Um, they had flood water. They had, you know, everything jumped out of banks, um, jumped and filled these ditches and new water on... Uh, freshly harvested ground or fallow ground or, or tops of tops of ditches that we used to not farm, you know, years ago. So yeah, everything's changed. Um, it's it's hard to try for man to try to manage and and go back and mimic uh, what was there. Um, it's just it's a difficult task. But yeah. Well, hey, Bill, I got this for you because you see so many people. I see it around me all the time. People will buy a patch of hardwood, throw up a levee around it, and think that they're going to create the next fighting bio. It's very difficult to do that. Yeah. Fighting bio is an X. It's always been an X, you know? Um, uh, yeah, we we can look at it from, from the air and, and look at some of the practices and and pick out the best things that are going on, but it's still, it, it's a it's on the X for a reason. You know, it's a historic area. 
Um, you could probably clear cut that and still kill ducks in it, you know, for a while. Um, I've seen spots that uh, I grew up hunting that were timber, and um, they went back in land level, and, and it seemed like a few years later the ducks were still trying to come to the same area till you know, till the... I, I'm glad you said that um, because I, I was going to say that before before this whole podcast ended was how ducks get hardwired into a place, and there's a... Um, a landowner and a, a a guy that Rocky and I know well. Anyway, he doesn't live far from us, but we got to talking one day um, about the place that he owns now. Um, back when he was young, uh, 50, 60 years ago, they hunted it, and it was trees. And it it's really and truly uh, on the, the far end of the place. It, it it's too. Uh, it was just kind of two swamps that kind of paralleled each other with with a ridge down the middle of it. Well. One of them, they always had good duck hunting in. The other one, not so much. And through the years, um, before he bought the place, the the landowner before that cut all the trees off of it and land leveled all of it. And still to this day, the better duck hunting on that property is in that same is on is on the same side of that of that ridge that used to be there. Now that ridge is just more or less a turn row in between two fields. That that area uh, is still better than the one right next to it uh it's just it's just funny how that how that happens um yeah how, how ducks just they just do that um it's really it's really neat uh it's it's just really really neat to talk to some of those guys and and then to hear you say that um it's really cool to, to hear yeah, that it makes you want to go back and unlevel that and put that you know i don't That's know right. how long it yeah. takes for them to for that to change, but you know, I've always wondered, and I've asked biologists this: is, is it something in the terrain? Also, is it a visual thing? Is it proximity? Is it something we're flying across, going from point A to point B, from a loafing area to a feeding area to a, you know roosting? Um, you know, is, is it some of that involved too? Uh, I'll leave that to the to the duck gurus to answer that, but it just Looking at it over the years, it seems like, you know, why in the world does a duck want to land here? And you go back and look at old imagery and old, you know, 1940s and 50s USDA imagery, and you say, ah, that's, look what used to be here. Look at every, look at everything within two or three miles of it. You know, I, I like to go back and look at that stuff. Um, just kind of figure out, you know, what are they doing? Like I said, if I could figure out what a what a bird with a peanut sized head was thinking, <laughs> I'd be in ducks every day. But uh <clears throat> Well, I can I can speak to what you were just talking about from personal experience. Uh there's a place over in Arkansas, not far from the Coca Cola Club that I've hunted for several years and when I started hunting it it was a rice field and every year we consistently killed ducks in this field and i was talking to the farmer about it and uh one day and and how you know it just was on that cause it was the spot the ducks wanted to be in he told me that his uh father had uh that it had been um all hardwoods and that it flooded every year and that his father had put in a drainage ditch and this is before you know the wetlands act when you could Yep. Those things weren't controlled, and after they put the ditch in to, to allow flood relief, um, 
it dried up enough that they realized they could farm it if they clear cut it. So they clear cut it and turned what was um, a seasonal hardwood floodplain into a rice field. And the ducks just kept on coming. Well, a few years ago, the state of uh, Arkansas, uh, through WRP, um, he enrolled it into a WRP agreement, and they did a uh, planting of willow oaks on it. Those willow oaks started to bear acorns a couple of years ago, and last season they flat wore them out when it flooded. So, you know, it's went from being hardwoods to being rice to being hardwoods again. And through that entire time, it has continued to hold birds. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty neat story, I thought. Yeah. I, place I grew up there, Glendora, um, probably one of the coolest little, it wasn't very big, you know, it was kind of some rough looking oaks, but it was oaks out in the middle of a field and you got backwater every year and Lord, that's what I grew up on. And then when it got clear cut uh, and level, it just just broke my heart. But uh, for years after that, you know, I could ride by and say, "Yeah, that's where that scope of woods used to be. They used to fu- they used to tornado right into that land leveled field right there that used to be trees." Um, wish we could go back and undo a lot of this, but <clears throat> moving on with progress. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that was really interesting in the article is the fact that it talked about how a lot of habitat that existed at the beginning of the 20th century was destroyed for rice farming. But, you know, what goes around tends to come around. And then as farmers started to flood uh, these green timber reservoirs to have water for their rice, they were creating replacement habitat for the ducks. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of things are working for us in the future, and I think that this is a big positive step for Arkansas Game and Fish to take a hard look at the way they manage these GTRs. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people that are going to scream and yell when they change the way that they're flooding some of these during duck season, but if you take a look at the big picture, uh, it's obviously going to benefit hunting and the ducks, I think, in the future. Bill, man, we know your time is very, very limited. Thank you so much. Like Rocky said, you, you really did bring a lot to the table today, and it was our pleasure to have you here as our guest. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you, all guys. Thank you, Bill. Bye. All right. Bye. Man, Rocky, you were right. I mean, he brought a whole lot to the table there, didn't he? Well, the thing is that that I never thought about, and you you see this every day. And I've just never sat in a boat and and thought about when when you're hunting some of this flooded timber, your your cypress and your tupelo gum in the lower spots as you move up in elevation, you, you get to the better oaks, and that's what the ducks are after. But you know, for the two reasons: one, the the smaller acorns. And, you know, usually the smaller acorns are right there in the dabbling part of the water. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's right yeah. there where you can exactly. just, a duck can tip over and eat. Yeah, well, you know, and, and that's what I was talking about earlier. 
back during the winter taking a look at these two pieces of property that I mentioned. And they're side by side. They're both about 300 acres. The one that has the better levee system and and holds water um, most of the year, it, it does. You know, when everything's dry, it has ducks because they've got water. Yeah, but the neighbor, because his timber is much healthier and his hardwoods are bearing acorns, you can bet the few days out of the year that nature does flood it during duck season, that's where the birds are going to be because they're getting to a much, much better food source and they love that new water. And I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that I hope that our, our listeners can take away from this, actually there are a couple things. Number one, uh, you said earlier, you know, a lot of people just go out, throw up by green timber, throw up a levee around it, and think they can kill ducks. Well, if there haven't been ducks there before, that's probably not going to happen. Number two, if it is an area that gets ducks and always has seasonally, when you're taking a look as a private landowner at putting in water control structure, you better take a really, really hard look at, hey, am I going to be able to get the water off of here? Because if not, you're going to hurt the habitat more than you're going to help it. And, yeah, and then the final... It your oak trees. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we, had, we had a place that we hunted like that for years, and, you know, kind of the funny thing about it, the guy that owned the place, um, one of the first things I noticed when, when we pulled up uh, first, you know, before we started hunting it was there was, there was a pipe, and, um, you know, it could easily be boarded up and everything. And, and uh, you know, I brought up the question. I said, oh, okay. I said, so we can actually put water on this place. So we control the water. And he said, no. He said, you have no control of the water going in it, but uh, but you can certainly let it out. And I need it out by February. <laughs> and that was kind of the, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it was uh, it's one of the most amazing spots. I mean, it, it would, if there were some years where, you know, we didn't have water, um, and that's kind of tough to do when you're trying to justify paying money to hunt a place. But most years, I mean, that's one in five years. It wouldn't there. When I say not be water, I mean there there wouldn't be water for more than you know thirty days of the season. Um, there was always water, but um, but you know that that was his thing was when people want uh, when somebody the guy that that, that we hunted it with uh, want to start leasing it was. You know, that guy's deal was, that's fine, but, but the water, you know, that pipe's there for a reason, and it's on the low end of the property to get the water off of it. Um, cause he didn't want uh, <laughs> those, those trees in their debt, and it, I mean, it pays off. It's, a, it's an exceptional place to hunt. But, um, you know, I, I think, and, and I know this sounds maybe really, really shallow, but, but people, I, I truly believe that people just think that trees and water inside of trees attracts ducks, and it just that's just not the case. Um, I know it seems that way sometimes, but uh, I've seen plenty of places do exactly what we're talking about, throw up a levee and think, man, we just flooded 80 acres of timber, we're going to hammer them, and you kill a handful of wood ducks. <laughs> and it's just, I've seen it happen time and time again. I mean, it's got more to do with location than anything, but it, but, uh, there's so much that goes into it that people just don't they don't apply to it they they don't apply the the you know the the extensive background of the area and the the importance of taking care of that um of that habitat well, and there, it's just, so they, just they just they just don't do it 
Yeah, but there's so many factors too, Josh. I mean, you know, depth of water is huge. I know that uh, one of the places, private timber that I hunt near Stuttgart with a really good friend of mine, man, it is it is a bitch to run a boat in there because it is so shallow. But it's intentional. You know, you're going to be standing in water no more than knee deep because that's as deep as they're going to flood it. And these guys kill the heck out of the ducks. But it's because they understand, hey, you know, we could make it easier to run our boats through this woods. But if we do that, we're going to make it harder for the ducks to reach the food. And that's right. The big that's reason right. well, we consistently that, have ducks uh, is because we have food. That's the um, the, the selfish and lazy part of of human beings is they would rather have it easier for themselves than than anything else. But you know, if 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 you want to put cool pictures on social media, then you got to have something to shoot and take cool pictures with. <laughs> uh, Amen. It's just. Uh, and, and and that's the thing is people are like, no, I don't want to walk or I don't want to clear a trail for a four wheeler, whatever. Um, you know, I've got a boat and a fast motor. We can just do it that way. And it's like you said, that's cool, but um, you're not gonna have as good of habitat for the ducks because they simply they simply can't feed. Same thing with people planting and flooding corn. People think that, that corn is king and it's the end-all, be-all to killing ducks consistently. And it is good. I, I mean, I, I admit admit that. But if you do not have the ability or you don't feel like standing in water that deep because you've got to get the water level and keep the water level close enough to that ear of corn for a duck to be able to feed. And that's not that's not uh, that shallow of water. Then people don't understand that. So then they, they put water on it and they say, well, crap. The ducks aren't eating it. Well, the duck's sitting in a foot of water, and the ear of corn is two and a half feet above his head. He can't get to it. You know, there's he can't he can't he can't do anything about it. So it's not the duck's fault. Um, so if you're going to do those kind of things, make sure that you have the, the the water and the type of management of the water and the land that you need uh, in order to to do that. Um, you know. Same thing with rice. If you're gonna have rice, that's fine. But if you can't put rice, you know, put water on it. Don't be mad when it's a briar patch when you come back because it's gonna grow up in weeds if you don't put water on rice. It's just just the truth of it. Uh, I get frustrated. Well, I hate people that do that every year. One of the things that Bill barely touched on that you could probably get him to talk on all all day is planning on buying a duck hole. And it goes back to kind of what you were talking about, J. Paul, when you were looking. I know you've been looking for to buy a place for a uh, a certain individual in West Tennessee. And one of the things that Bill could talk about all day is the planning in buying a place. And one of the major things that, you know, he could talk on all day is, is looking at the historical parts of buying a duck call because it's not just going out there and say, man, this looks ducky. No. It's imprinting over 50, 60, 70, 100, 200 years. Now, where was this place 50 years ago? What did this place look like 50 years ago? Did the river back out in it? Were the ducks imprinted on it years ago? Because that plays a huge part in it. Yeah, oh, without he touched on that a little bit, and I'm glad he did because, you know, he said one of his favorite things to do is to look back 40, 50 years and and I, I'm, I'm glad he said that. It's, um, I mean, that's 
it's important. It's, it's crucial knowledge um, because so many people think, well, I've got the money. I'm going to I'm gonna buy that place. I'm going to put water on it, and I'm going to kill ducks. And that's, you know, unless you're just a lucky person that happened to look up on, you know, uh, an unknown X in the waterfowl world, it's just that's not going to happen. Well, you know, it, it, it can, but you've got to have one of two things in your favor. You've either got to be well, lucky can, or you've got to be yeah. patient. You've got to be patient. It, it can. It, it absolutely can, um, but but to keep it consistent or for it to be consistent, you've got to do some homework. No doubt. But, and but you and can some do planning. It. And some planning, too. You, you've got you to go. look at the big picture. You've got to look 20 years ahead of where you are now. No doubt about it. Look, here's what I tell people all the time when they come to me and ask uh, my advisor want me to be a consultant um, when they're looking to purchase a duck hole. You've got to look at two factors. Number one, what is the history of it? And if you know it's an established duck hole where it's killed ducks for years in the past, if you manage it right, you're probably going to continue to kill them in the future. Number two, let's say you don't know the history on it, either because it's never really been hunted or you can't find out about it, or maybe it's never really had ducks, but you think it's a place that can create ducks. Is it possible? Sure it is, but you better have a plan and you better be patient. If it does not have a history, the only way you are going to make it a duck hole is if you give those birds the opportunity to imprint on it. And to do that, you're going to have to set the buffet out for the birds. You're going to have to establish the habitat for them or set the table, if you will. And then you're going to have to leave them alone for a few years and give them the opportunity to imprint on that place. And let me tell you, if it's not a proven duck hole and you just start hunting it from day one, you're never going to kill ducks unless you're exceptionally lucky because there's not going to be any imprint to have them come there year in and year out. That's for sure. Would you disagree with that, Rocky? No, I fully agree with that. I, 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 I think that one of the biggest mistakes made in waterfowling is is somebody that go in, goes in and buys a place and thinks it's going to be the next Coca-Cola Woods or Fighting Bio or, you know, whatever it may be because they bought Amen. a patch of hardwoods and they're going to throw a levee up around it and they're going to kill them from year one. It's just not going to happen. And even on those places, there's a management plan in place, which brings us to where I'd like to close this thing out. And I want to hear your thoughts from both of you guys on this. You know, taking a look at that article, uh, some great information in there. Obviously, the folks at Arkansas Game and Fish are doing their homework. You know, they're looking at the biology. They're looking at these studies, and, and they're trying to look at the big picture. And I applaud Arkansas Game and Fish for obviously trying to do something to not only preserve the habitat, but in the long run, uh, do something that's going to be better for nature and going to provide even better hunting opportunities. But with that said, and this is what I want your input about, it appears to me that they are setting the stage for radically revising the way that they manage some of these public green timber reservoirs. And it seems pretty obvious to me that 
they are going, if they're going to mimic nature, they're going to have to change some of their practices. That means that some areas um, are not going to be artificially flooded from year to year. That means that some areas are not going to be very accessible by boat because it, it appears the writing on the wall says that they're taking a look at duration of having water on and depth of water are two of the big keys. When these changes go into effect, whatever they may be, I expect that we're going to have a lot of public hunters in Arkansas really kicking and screaming about this. Uh, what do you guys anticipate? What's your take on it? No, I think uh, I think you're exactly right. They're they're going to see an uproar, um, but it it just comes down to just uh, look. I really do feel sorry for Arkansas game and fish a lot of days because it doesn't matter what they do. People it's like people bash them for it. But I mean, I, I think it, I think it's a it's a great plan. It, it's headed in a in a great direction. You know, you know by doing that, you know the. Uh, one in three year type deal where, and that one year is not saying, and this is in there that it's going to be dry. Like you can walk across it and not get muddy all year long. It will not be artificially flooded in those years. When natural water gets in it, obviously it, it, it's going to have some natural water. But um, you know, I think they're just looking at they're they're looking fifteen twenty years ahead. I mean, if and and too many people do not do that nowadays in in anything but especially in hunting they do not look at the future they look at what they can go do now and like i said put up you know what they think is a cool picture on social media they don't they don't care about tomorrow or 5 10 20 years down the road and i'm glad arkansas game and fish does because if they don't it's going to be exactly like you know like like you just said like Bill just said it's going to be dead tree reservoirs it's not going to be green tree reservoirs and that's and that's the truth of it. And that's not just, um, you know, just saying it to to, to be funny. It, it's the truth. I mean, it they will not be there. There will be it'd be nothing there. It just it'll look like a big cutover because everything's going to fall over when the wind blows through there. Yeah, you know, and I think that I think that's kind of a little bit extreme. But you definitely are, are on track, and that's what they're taking a look at. Hey. We want to preserve this for the future, but in doing that, you're going to have people that gripe about it. How about you, Rocky? What's your take? I'm going to give you the short version. All that matters in life is the big picture. You know, what, what's going to happen long term? If it affects you long term, you need to make the change now. <laughs> that was pretty simple, but really, really well said. Well, you know, again, I'm really, really proud to see Arkansas Game and Fish is being proactive. You know, they've seen, taking a look at the history of what they've been doing, they see the damage that they're doing to these GTRs, and they're about to be implementing some change. I know that there are people that are going to fuss about it, but uh, I think overall it's going to be really, really good for public hunting in that area. And look, you know, we started off this podcast saying that, hey, we were going to talk about that recent Delta waterfowl article but then we you know because of this topic we put it off to next week but when we discuss that next week you're going to see that a lot of the people that responded to delta waterfowl's article and and position on uh, hunter numbers you know are basing their opinion solely upon 
what they're seeing in public hunting areas like Arkansas that are very crowded. But, you know, what you've really got there is an example of where Arkansas Game and Fish has done a great job of providing opportunity, and people are just taking advantage of that. And that's why it appears that there's, you know, there's so many duck hunters today when really it's some smaller areas that you see a lot of pressure that people are basing those opinions on. And, you know, um, we're going to come back, I think, Wednesday, not next week, but this Wednesday, and, and revisit that. Um, man, Rocky did a great job finding Bill and bringing us an expert guest onto the show today. And uh, really, really good to be back on here. Um, guys, with that, we're about out of time. Closing thoughts? No, I don't have a whole lot. I'm looking forward to talking about the Dr. Waterfowl uh, article and and um but but i i mean i i i'm glad that i'm glad that more and more people are are starting to see the bigger picture i just hope that the that the right people uh start understanding the big picture especially in waterfowl hunting hey any time yep. that you're any time you give josh the opportunity to go off on a rant because i think we're going to see that on wednesday <laughs> It is. No, I'm not going to go off on a. I'm not going to go off on a rant, but you'll know exactly where I stand on it when we're done. I guarantee you, Rocky, (laughs) we're going to hear his opinion. Before we get it started, no. (laughs) See what you're going to rant on it. Uh, All right, look, and I'm not going to give you the chance to do that today because I want you to save all that good stuff for Wednesday. Guys, another great podcast. All you guys out there listening, we appreciate you tuning in. And uh, Bill Shepard gave us some great information. If you haven't already, go to agfc.com and check out that article. And once again, we want to thank you for joining Rocky, Josh, and myself here on the On Next podcast powered by DuckSales.com. 